Good morning, listeners. You're welcome to this week's Ag Report. I'm Jim Finn. My guests this week are Michael Kelly from Grow It Yourself, Michael Healy from Chagas, and my final guest this morning will be Rosie McNally. My first guest this morning is no stranger to Agriport on Tip FM. She is Alice Doyle, who is now the deputy president of the Irish Farmers Association. Before, she just had an ordinary job for the uh, association, uh, looking after all our affairs, and particularly some got to do with fair deal and other issues that affect farm families. But Alice was successful in becoming the Deputy President of the IFA and that happened through her winning the election against her opponent and three weeks ago or thereabouts Alice took up the job as being Deputy President. Alice, good morning and first of all a really big congratulations to you. You fought a really good battle and you're after striking a blow for Manon Nahirn. Thanks very much, Jim. Good morning to you and to all your listeners. Great to be back with you again. Um, good to be back maybe in a different capacity. Really enjoyed my time, I must say. Yeah, it's a great day. And on the day of my uh, election, I said it was a great day for Manana Farmer, the women of the farm and farm women. And uh, I think I didn't realise actually myself how significant that was, I think, until afterwards. But they haven't been around now to a number of the counties, even in the last two or four weeks. Uh, the number of women who I see coming out to meetings and the number of women who have uh, are turning up and chatting and talking, I am delighted to see it. I think it has actually been the little boost that the organisation needed to bring out the other half of, of uh, the, the farm family. So it's great. But my role now is somewhat different. I have to represent everybody, uh, male and female, young and old. And I'm looking forward to it immensely, I must say. Uh, anyone who has met me in the last three or four weeks will realise I now have a hump in my back because there's a responsibility on my shoulders. And uh, I have to carry that responsibility, but I take it very seriously. So I'm looking forward to it, Jim. And Alice, uh, what what's your day like now? Uh, you know, I know you were busy when you had the other responsibilities within IFA, but what's a day like now for Alice Doyle? Well, Jim, IFA, anyone who's very involved will know that it becomes all-consuming, I suppose, mm. to a point. And I suppose for for five out of the seven days of the week for me, and it doesn't have to be Monday to Friday, it could be any five of the days, I try to take cake Sunday as a family day, but for the rest of the days, certainly um, IFA is all-consuming. I start at any time in the morning. It could be, depending if there's a programme to be done on the radio early in the morning, or I might have to answer a phone call. It could start at seven in the morning, and it could still be going on at 11 at night. Now, you do get the break in between, but um, a lot of it deals with phone calls from people, meetings on different issues. We have meetings locally, nationally, internationally. So there's a lot of stuff going on that nobody knows about, I suppose, or is aware of, I shouldn't say know that, are not aware of that goes on in the background that we have to do to keep the organisation ticking over. And as Deputy President, I'm, I sit on a lot of those committees, I sit on the steering groups, um, and I have to be au okay fait with everything. So I suppose at the moment, it is, I would say it is all-consuming because I am trying to get myself up to scratch on everything that's happening. Uh, I know as time goes by, that will become a little easier because I will become more okay with, you know, all the workings of the organisation and all the different policies and the change that take place. Uh, but it's a, it's pretty, it's a pretty steep learning curve, I can tell you, um, to come to, to get to task with uh, all that has to be to be learned. 
And I really want to be on top of the job. I, I don't want to be found wanting when it comes to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. having information or being up to date with, with what's happening. So, uh, as I said, a steep learning curve. Feels like I'm back in school again, Jim. OK. And, of course, you're there to support the president. Again, you have to take some of the weight off him, as it so happens, because uh, he can't go to every single meeting, whether that's local, national or international. Absolutely. And I think what some people sometimes forget is that the president and, uh, and the deputy president, you know, in an ideal situation, which I, I think Francie and I have, uh, that we consult a lot and we consult each other regularly. Um, you know, at, at the moment, we, we'd be consulting with each other almost every day. Uh, we, we're keeping track of what each other is doing. We're up to, up to date on what the other one's doing so we know what, what's happening and uh, filling each other in and what's going on. And then deputising, yeah, that's for him. If he can't be somewhere, I have to be there. And then there's lots of occasions where both of us have to be there. Certain certain meetings with ministers or whatever, mm-hmm. both of us are required to be there uh, because it's, it's expected that the, the seriousness of the situation requires both of us to be there. Uh, so th- that's one of the big, you know, that, that's mm-hmm. one of the big tasks, I suppose, in working with the president. But the day-to-day work of dealing with the members, to me, is, is a priority. And, you know, talking to members, dealing with their issues, dealing with issues either individually with them, dealing with them at county level or dealing with them on national committees uh, with issues that affect our members. To me, that's, that's the key role that I have to do. And uh, I, it's the one I like best too. I like actually talking to the to our individual members, you know, talking to them about their issues. Sometimes I can help, sometimes I can find someone else that can help and sometimes maybe we don't have the answer. But we do have to we do have to work with our members and that is that would be my priority. I think that I will be working as hard as I can with the members for the members. Okay, the elections were very different to the ones previously with the way in which it was conducted. And you're talking about uh, getting the temperature from the members. What was the temperature from the members when it was all over? Was it a successful way of carrying out IFA elections or do some people want to go back to the old ways? Personally, Jim, I have to say uh, I I found it very very positive uh, in the sense of how it worked out. You know, going around to meet the members, we had 15 hostings around the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a, So we had a lot of engagement with people individually. We also had a lot of engagement with people, you know, by phone this time rather than trying to run around the country to meet people. In the past, you know, you'd have sent delegations off to different counties to look for votes for you. This time, a lot of it was done by phone, which gave us an opportunity to actually engage maybe better with people because... People would take a call for a short while, you know, trying to find someone in their house now to find them in the yard, stand talking to them for an hour. And you can spend all day driving around and find 10 or 12 people. Sit on the phone for a day or a night and you could talk to a lot of people. And I found that that very good, I have to say. Um, and I found the engagement from people was excellent. Uh, and people wanted to talk. Look, at I, I have to say it, it was a, an eye-opener to realise the different issues that are in different parts of the country. Sometimes we forget, you know, that different parts of the country have different issues, and uh, but they're all equally important. And I think by travelling around the country, it absolutely opened my eyes as to what those issues are and to, you know, where we have to do certain things to help certain people. And the people themselves were very engaging, mm-hmm. uh, really wanted to talk. They were very interested in a female running. 
Um, I think they were very interested in checking me out. Like the questions that I was asked were, were very direct questions. Are you capable of this job? Do you feel you really want to be in this job? Do you think you'll be able for the, the toughness of the job? So people were, were personally concerned that, you know, that I would be fit for the job. And not because I was a female, I think, but I think in the past you could just assume the man was going to do it, so he'd be all right, you know. Mm-hmm. But this case, there were, there were, it was a concern for me, and in the good sense, that they wanted to make sure that I wasn't putting myself in for to too much that I'd kill myself at it, I think, you know. And at the same time, they were very anxious to find out what's the, what way would a woman tackle these issues. Yeah. And, that's, and uh, yeah. I, I found that engaging now. And that's not any harm to bring a woman's perspective to some of the issues that are out there. And then talking about the issues, Alice, from your point of view now as Deputy President, what are the big issues? Oh, Jim, I could spend all day talking about the issues, but we could name the first the five or six top issues that, yeah. that are really, really big. Look, at the, the, the current issue and has been an issue throughout the campaign and still is at, at one of the top issues is the whole debacle all around payments. The last mm-hmm. year has proved to be a, a fiasco when it came to farmers being paid and they, they just haven't they haven't been paid. It's, it, it's, the frustration is unbelievable, it's palpable. Like, there has to be some fundamental rethink of, of this because uh, no other sector in the, in the country, in the, in the world, I think, would put up with the lack of payment for a job done. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I often said, I often use the analogy that if, if pensioners in the morning were told that this is what today, Thursday, whatever, you know, if they were told tomorrow they weren't going to get um, mm-hmm. uh, their pension, there'd be a riot on the street. Uh, you know, or there's anything would be a riot by Monday morning if they mm-hmm. weren't paid. Mm-hmm. We wait five, four, five, six months and we still don't have dates for some payments for the Acres programme, for example. Mm-hmm. And we hear now at the, you know, well into February. And farmers still have to buy their groceries. They still have to buy the meal to feed the cattle. Uh, they uh, they might get a bit of credit in the creamery for a month or so, but they're not going to get it for eight uh, months. The, the housewife is not going to get it when she goes into the supermarket and says, well, hang on, now we'll get paid in May and we'll pay you for the groceries in May or we'll pay you for the meal in May. So that's the, one of the top ones. The whole area around derogation and the, the losing of the 250 back to the 220, that's still a huge issue uh, because we have to make sure that we don't lose the 220 come next year. And we're well underway working towards, you know, trying to deal with that now and, 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 and make sure that we, we can look after that going forward. Um, they're two of the biggest issues. Yeah. Then we have all the different schemes um, mm-hmm. and the complexity the complexity around the schemes. And that is the big problem. The, like All the policies that we have don't take into account the, the practicalities of farming. And farmers are really frustrated by that. So I think, you know, there has to be a fundamental reset in how we think about farming policy and how it's designed and implemented, um, because that's what's really bugging farmers. It's they don't mind regulation if it's practical and if it works, but regulation that is designed on a keyboard and has no understanding of the practicalities of farming just is not on. Alice, we're running out of time. We're going to have to leave it there for now. I'm quite sure you and I will be talking quite a bit during 2024. But look at once again. Uh, on behalf of the farmers of Tipperary, congratulations on your elevation to uh, Deputy President President of the IFA, and I'm quite sure you will do us all proud. Well, thank you very much, Jim, and I look forward to visiting Tipperary in the very near future uh, and engaging with, with the farmers down there who were very good to me in the election. So thank you very much. Okay, listeners, that was Alice Doyle, the new Deputy President of the Irish Farmers Association.
My next guest this morning is Michael Healy from Chagas, and Michael is with me to talk about spring grazing. And uh, given the week that was in it and before we went on air, Michael and I were having a chat. It's some week to be talking about spring grass, but still, uh, spring isn't that far away. So I suppose we better say something about it. Good morning, Michael, and thanks for joining us. Good morning, Jim, Yeah, and your listeners. Okay. Yeah, so look, yeah, so I'm here to talk about, a bit about uh, spring grazing and starting, the, and starting the year off. And I suppose um, uh, at, at, at this stage now, there's um, calving is well underway. And in, in on a, I suppose on a number of farms, there's plenty of cows calved at this stage anyway on it. So, that, um, so the next thing on people's mind would be, can they get opportunities to get cows out um, and uh, to take advantage of um, take advantage of this grass that was held over from last autumn? Like, yeah, and there's quite a bit of that out there. Quite a bit of grass left over since last autumn. There was, there was. Sure, look, we all remember last autumn was very wet, and this was um, cows came in early, and things things finished up quicker than mm-hmm. uh, people would have liked, and I suppose. Um, maybe it, it it presents an opportunity uh, this spring if you have that grass there on farm to try and um, to try and make the, the best use out of it. So I suppose it's um, look. What I, maybe I'll just talk about first. Maybe look some of the benefits of mm-hmm. this um, of this grass and that kind of. And look, um, I suppose first part of you're you're looking at the cow and you say trying to get improved animal performance on this. You know, be it uh, protein percentages or just. Um, uh, increase in milk yield, but just basically getting um, better production from from your cows on it. And I suppose the other side of it is then you're just lowering the feed cost, the, day, the daily feed cost per day. If you're able to, if you're able to get the cows out uh, for a couple of hours, maybe or maybe for the full day, depending on how the how the the the, the weather and ground conditions. Um, uh, work out for your play ball that um, on those days on it, you know. So like mm-hmm. it's um, and look, I suppose people look at how do you go about it, what do you need to do, or what's what's involved on it. Like and I suppose um, for for anybody that's into measuring grass and knows their farm covers and. Um, and was measuring all last year on it. They might have already done a, an opening grass cover measurement, and they'll have established how much grass they have on the farm mm-hmm. on it. And so they so they have a a, a figure uh, uh, of of grass that they know that's on their farm at the moment on it. And um, and I suppose maybe just a, um, a, a target for for anyone that's measuring on it is that you don't you don't want to run your farm cover uh, down to less than probably 550 um, of a farm cover before the end of the first rotation. And I know we're a bit we're a long ways away from from that point in time on it on it, but it's it's a figure that um, you can you'd you'd watch as you go from week to week to week. To see that you're um, that you, that you haven't taken too much off the farm too quickly and and ran the farm cover down too fast on it, mm-hmm. um, or I suppose for anybody for anybody else, there's a there's a, I suppose what we call it is the spring rotation planner, right, and yeah. it's just um, kind of a, a idea around the idea of this. Say um, if you have um, 100 acres of grazing available for the cows uh, for the first spring for the first rotation on it, 
that you just break and uh, farm up into blocks and you just say the, the first 30% or 30 acres that you have from now until the 1st of March um, to uh, graze that block of land on it. And that and, and that kind of that's your that's your block of land for the start of the second rotation, and then you take the next next thirty percent would be approximately up to St Patrick's Day, and and then the final forty percent of your land is used from St Patrick's Day on until the end of the uh, end of the first rotation. It's just a way of blocking out the ground, using up a number of paddocks per week, um, to to hit some of those targets on it. You know, so it is. Um, now, the the some of the free targets um, can be hard to achieve because, um, like you like you said earlier on about how broken the weather has been this week and how much rain we've got on it. Like, and um, sometimes it tends to be hard to hit um, hit some of those figures and trying to to get ground uh, grazed off. Like, and that's and that is and that is the challenge every year on it. Like. Is to, um, to 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 be able to start off first of all, and um, to be able to um, keep going and keep grazing um, from um, from that side of things. Wouldn't farmers want to be very careful though, uh, letting uh, cows? I know they wouldn't be letting all their cows into a paddock at the moment, but uh, given, as I said at the beginning of the program, we're after getting an awful lot of rain, a lot of damage would be done to that particular pad- paddock or paddocks. Yeah, 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 and that's and that's that's an important point around um, managing um, managing the grazing on it, and I suppose. Um, like this time of year, you have to be prepared for the wet days, the rainy days, and uh, no doubt we're getting them all ready, and more will come again on us as well on it. So I suppose maybe there's a number of approaches that um, are are important to take around um, uh, grazing in those kind of conditions on it. And I suppose first of all, you look at uh, the type of grass that you're going to put the cows into, and I suppose. Um, on on the day that you know that um, you could be, first of all, you might decide that you mightn't let the cows out immediately after the milking in the morning because um, it could be raining at that stage on it and you could be waiting for the, the, the weather to change and you just uh, so you, you you might hold off a small bit and or by the same token you could be bringing them back in a bit early you might have got them out for a few hours and you're bringing them back uh, back in off the pasture before um uh, significant damage is, uh, is 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 or or any damage I suppose you're trying to you're trying to minimize damage you don't want to damage paddocks um you want to protect paddocks for for for, for future uh, rotations but if you if they are put out into low grass cover, they have the ability to graze it off quicker and be finished quicker, and then it gives you an opportunity to bring them back in on it. Um, now you have to look at like um, and I say, look at your fields. You know your you know your own farm, and you know places that you know uh, fields that are probably no go areas. Um, in the springtime, that you say like there's just going to be that, that block of land over there is going to be too wet, and you're going to have to work within the the parts of the farm that you feel that um that that, that won't um cut up as quickly or drier and um, and more suitable for early grazing so like you're avoiding soft paddocks hilly paddocks and you're kind of setting up kind of trying to give them square blocks of land to get them into it 
Um, now, what I suppose what's kind of crucially important, I suppose, around all of this is like um, you know, plenty of fencing reels, uh, back fencing and moth areas that they might have been using yesterday mm-hmm. or grazing yesterday on it. And that's that's important because um, if you're sending them into a paddock for, for their second and their third, maybe half day of grazing mm-hmm. on it, um, you, you, you need to try and avoid walking over that ground again, if at all possible. And that's where you need to be able to walk them down along a strip of uh, along the side of the paddock and get them into the paddock without uh, walking o- necessarily walking over all of yesterday's grazing on it. And that's where a lot of damage can happen in in those cases on it. But um, like I know from from kind of out on farms in springtime, and there's a lot of fences taken down and wire uh, dropped down to kind of facilitate machinery work um, and kind of was kind of taken down wires along roadways because to help machinery to get in off roadways at different sites and different multiple access points on it. So I think there's a kind of an infrastructure, grazing infrastructure that needs to be looked at as well um, to, 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 to look at um, like you have what roadways you have and on it but it's, 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 it's really kind of working off paddocks kind of immediately off roadways and, and using those on, on, on difficult grazing days on it. And um, but I think you have to be flexible um, uh, to, to all of it because there will be some days and the opportunity might arise to get them out. Um, uh, it just it could just stay too broken and and uh, and and then other days you might get out for longer grazings and you'll make up for you'll make up for lack of grazing um, on other days. You know, so it is, mm-hmm. it's um, but you know it is, it's. Um, it's 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 I suppose really it's about being um prepared for the rainy day because we, we will get enough of them as well like and I'm working around it. Okay, um Michael, we're nearly out of time, but just one question that uh came to mind when you were talking there. Uh, you know, uh, a farmer would want to get back in with a bit of chemical nitrogen or fertilizer uh you know when the animals come off a paddock that's very important as well because that's what builds the grass for the next rotation it does it does and i just i just had a quick look at the metair and that website there and this morning and i was just looking up soil temperatures on it <laughs> and it just kind of looking up yesterday's soil temperatures and a couple of a couple of metair and sites kind of um surrounding tipperary i suppose um, was was coming up with seven and seven point one side temperature on it, and and I did just had a look at the side temperatures for the last seven days, and some of those temperatures were were above average as well. So, like so, um, so you need side temperature anyway. Yeah. Um, when you when you're when you're thinking about am I going to go out and spread bag fertilizer on it? And yeah, it is. So like, um, you're either at this throughout this month. Um, uh, for paddocks that didn't receive any slurry to date, mm-hmm. uh, you'll be looking at um, half a bag of uh, uh, of a protected urea mm-hmm. type product um, throughout the month. Um, some paddocks may be being followed with uh, slurry, um, maybe 2,000 gallons of, uh, of, of slurry mm-hmm. per acre after it's grazed, but that's all depending on ground conditions as well. But um, some people are looking at trying to find places and opportunities to spread um, fertilizer and slurry at this stage. But for 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 this month, um, probably half of the grazing land will be receiving a kind of a um, a protected urea type product, 
and um, the balance of the ground may have received slurry already um, um, at this uh, at this point in time on it, and that's kind of the kind of the the, the fertilizer slurry situation kind of up to now anyway on it, like you know. Okay, well, look at Michael for this morning. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you ever so much for joining us. That listeners was Michael Healy from Chagas giving us some very good advice for spring grazing. My next guest is Michael Kelly from GIY, and Michael is no stranger to uh, this program on Tip FM. He's been with me many, many times over the years, but uh, they're just after getting the use of another piece of property to do all the good work that uh, they do as an organisation. Good morning, Michael, and thanks very much for joining us. Morning, Jim. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on again. It's, it's lovely to talk to you again. Uh, yeah, it's lovely to talk to you as well and to try keep up with you is a bit of a job, I tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously... Look, if I if I keep moving forward, people I, nobody can catch me, Jim. That's yeah, the way yeah. I, that's well, the I way suppose I that's that. right. Uh, if you start going backwards, yeah. they'll all catch you. Anyway, exactly. you're after getting the use of a piece of property on Moore Estate. Uh, set the scene there for my listeners. Yeah, well, um, we've been looking for more more land for a couple of years now, uh, Jim. Yeah. Um, and actually, I think I think maybe I spoke to you about this uh, last year. But uh, we we've obviously we've got a our kind of urban farm, if you will, in yeah. Waterford, which is about three acres at Grow HQ there. But um, we wanted to sort of up the game substantially in terms of the amount of food we could grow and the amount of courses we could do and so on. So we've been on the lookout for a suitable piece of land. And, and uh, recently, just at the end of last year, we signed uh, a lease um, for uh, a wall, a very large wall garden at the Kermore Estate, which is which is in Port Law in County Waterford. Um, overall, it's one of the, the biggest estates in the country. It's two and a half thousand acres. It's... Uh, I think the largest private estate in Ireland, uh, but the wall garden. We we approached them last year and sort of were looking. Told them we were looking for for land, and um, they they showed us the the wall garden, which is uh, we believe the largest wall garden in the UK and Ireland. It's it's twelve acres in total, um, and completely walled, and the walls are in are in good condition and. Um, just just to set the scene back in the in the sort of in its heyday i suppose which was probably the late 1800s um it was it was employing 50 people in the garden it was it was like feeding the estate obviously but also all of its workers at the time and and a lot you know the mm-hmm. surrounding area i suppose of port law um so so an incredible heritage they were growing things there back in the 1880s that we can only dream of now growing pineapples and all sorts in the in the glass houses and growing you know uh, huge vineries and all sorts. So an amazing amazing heritage. It's it's sort of fallen into a bit of disrepair over the the you know in more recent times. It's been more or less derelict since you know the 1960s, um, and we're we're basically taking it over again and and trying to bring it back to some of its former glory in, in, a, in a kind of a collaboration with the Kermore estate itself. So we're really excited to to kick it off and not a little daunted by the, the amount of work that's involved. And um, But, you know, just, just to return it to that, to yeah. that heritage and give it a, give it a, 
a modern spin, I suppose. I think it's, it's a very exciting project. Now, I believe that you have all kinds of heavy machinery in there at the moment, cleaning the place up. So is that going to take long? Um, we don't have much heavy machinery because we have to be very careful um, of how we go because we're, like, we're obviously working with some very old buildings, mm-hmm. uh, the, the sort of old glass houses and outhouses and things. And uh, But yeah, we are, we are you know, clearing there, but we're, we're, we're basically getting up and running with the food production pretty much immediately. We're starting, you know, planting uh, veg and fruit almost immediately. We're getting you know, big flock of hens uh, and and uh, some some uh, of the sort of more traditional breed of pigs and stuff. So it's it's really we'll be up and running very quickly, and we'll have we're aiming to have an organic box scheme that people will be able to sign up to get their weekly box of eggs and eggs and things from us uh, by around July, um, mm. and obviously it allows us to sort of close the the gap we have in our own restaurant in Grow HQ in Waterford. Um, We'll be able to, you know, supply pretty much all of our needs now there. And then we'll be running courses there and all sorts of, you know, everything from keeping hens to, uh, you know, small holding and animal husbandry and regenerative agriculture and uh, at the the wall garden itself in the year ahead. So um, it's it's all all systems go to get it to get it moving. And I think like the way things are in our food system, that that kind of work is is critical you know showing showing that you can have these relatively small uh, uh, pieces of land and make them productive and viable uh, growing organically and regeneratively i think that's that's important work as well you know yeah and i presume you must be delighted with the expansion of organic farming in ireland over the past three or four years it has been quite startling well, it's yeah, it's it's there's good and bad in it. I mean, it's 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 good to see it starting to get a bit of traction, but it's not it's not quick enough. And and uh, honestly, the vast majority of our of our food production in Ireland is still conventional agriculture with very heavy usage of of fertilizers and pesticides. And we we know that that type of farming is having a massive impact on the. Uh, on the planet and on on human health so i think it's it's um we need to see a lot more of this and and uh you know it's it's too slow like if you think about in in dairy production i think um there's uh, there's something like 70 uh organic dairy farmers in the country uh so a tiny tiny proportion of the overall amount of of milk we're producing and it's the same in vegetables and it's the same in it's it's probably worse actually in pigs and and hens so it's 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 small scale stuff um and i think uh consumers certainly seem to want food that, or more organic food but i think the big question is whether we're willing to pay what it costs to to produce food that way that's that's the big imponderable i think okay getting back to your uh walled garden uh, how many people have you uh, working? Uh, will you have working in it when it's up and running? <laughs> uh. Well, um, we we've hired an extra two people in mm-hmm. the last month uh, to work it. So so like it'll and probably some seasonal labour, maybe maybe two or so. Um, you know, in, yeah. in the height of summer when we're harvesting and so on. But 
So it's very small scale to put that in context in, in again in its heyday back in the 1880s and right up to, you know, through to the 1920s. And so the, there would have been 40 or 50 gardeners working there. So that gives you a sense of how how cheap the labor was back then comparatively. Um, but obviously we have we have machinery now and things that allows you to work bigger bits of land with less resources, but it's still still a very, very tight team um, to make it to make it kind of work at that kind of scale. Well, of course, Michael, I was around in the 40s and the 50s. So I and there was uh, on the home farm here, there was uh, six men. So yeah. and, and unfortunately, the way farming has gone, as you quite rightly said earlier, there's now only one person doing all that work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's a very lonely, a very lonely path for farmers to 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 walk on, you know, and uh, we we featured a, a farmer in, a, in in Food Matters, the series we did uh, mm-hmm. last year for RT. And it's, um, you know, he, he's a dairy farmer. He spoke about how the only interaction that he has with his consumers is, is when the milk lorry, you know, comes up to the yard uh, every day. And it's like it's a very... I think that's a very isolating experience, you know, so I think um, getting showing showing, you know, that there are alternatives to that with with sort of ways of producing food that where you're much closer to the consumer, like a box scheme. And, you know, that that sort of approach, I think, is important. It's not for everyone. I I completely understand that. But I think um, I think we need radical change in our food system and and. uh, we need it. We need it fast because of the problems around climate change and others, and the, and the food systems role in that. Talking about the speed at which we need these things to happen, I started farming in 1962 uh, in my own right, and there was only a handful of cows and some cattle and a bit of tillage on the farm. And it has taken until now to be able to have a herd of 80 cows. So that's yeah. slow progress, and I think people expect that uh, farmers can change overnight that can't happen and that's but it will happen eventually provided that the pace is right yeah and i i agree with that and change change is very tough Mm. jim i think unfortunately though climate change may force our hand on this like we know that um parts of europe are are all but unfarmable now because Mm. of climate change uh you know places that would have been powerhouses of of production parts of spain and so on <clears throat> so like it's i i guess that's the rock and the hard place that we're in where we need to change quickly and yes um because of those big big climate change changes that are coming down the tracks <clears throat> but it's very difficult to do i'm not i'm not underestimating that for one minute you know but i i guess we can we can give examples of um hopefully you know hundreds of families that we can we can provide food to from this relatively small amount of space and do so in a kind of organic and regenerative way and show that that's that 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 can be viable that's that's the goal in the years ahead from this piece of land okay well look at i wish you the best of luck with it i'm quite sure you and i will be talking about what's growing in it and uh, maybe towards the end of the year and how successful yeah. year one was but we wish Hopefully, you every Jim, yeah. success michael and knowing you it will be a success Thanks a million. And I really appreciate the, the, these conversations, Jim. So thank you for having me on.
No problem, Michael. So glad, I'm only, only too glad to have you on. That listeners was Michael Kelly from GIY. My next guest this morning is Rosie McNally. And Rosie's with me to talk about a programme that's going to be aired on TG Cahar on Wednesday the 21st of February. Good morning, Rosie, and thanks very much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks a million. Now, Rosie, this particular programme that's going out on TG Cahar, it's, it's got to do with flooding in Ireland, is the focus of it. And I believe that you have done some research on flooding in Ireland. Yeah, I suppose just to clarify, we're not an ex- experts on, on flooding. We've got experts in to give us, you know, the expert information on it. We're, we're filmmakers. Um, so it was important for us to kind of compile um, a program and put a program together that would be, you know, suitable for audiences. But at the same time, that it was a learning, you know, for us mm-hmm. and learning for the audience as well. Um, yeah, the, the documentary called Tiltia, which is translates to, to flooding in Irish, um, it looks at how Ireland is, you know, is at a threat. We, you know, we face um, a lot of uh, coastal kind of flooding with um, actually 40% of the population live in five um, kilometres of the coast, you know, and it is estimated that around 70,000 Irish addresses are at risk of coastal flooding by 2050. So those numbers are quite staggering and quite you know, fearful as well. Um, but the documentary does look, and, and a lot of our um, work was highlighted on the communities throughout the country that are trying to do things to mitigate um, flooding in their areas, you know. So that was a, a, a huge focus for us to be looking at people who were on the gra- ground and doing things um, to try and help and to mitigate flooding within their areas, yeah. And isn't flooding something that has been with us anyway, I know we talk an awful lot about it now, but I'm talking to you on what is it, the Thursday of this week, and we got an amount of rain last night, absolutely unbelievable amount of rain last night. And I went out into uh, the fields on a farm here in Tipperary, and I was looking at places that flooded after heavy rain when I was a school child, and that wasn't yesterday or today, I can tell you that much. And all those same places are flooded this morning on my land and on my neighbour's land. It, it, to me, it isn't a phenomenon that places are flooding at the moment. It's, I, I agree with you there. And I think that, you know, one of our contributors, she was on, she speaks about this, that, you know, flooding, it's not... Um, it's not something that that does that hasn't always happened, but I suppose if we look at the amount of storms that we've had within the last number of years, how quickly they're coming around and how quickly it's it's the rapidness of those. You know, um, it's not that it's the the seasons have sort of changed with with the change of of the climate and various other other things. Um, but I suppose it's it's not a new thing, but it's it's how um it's how quickly they're happening. So they're they're. You know, the, mm-hmm. we look at the amount of storms we have had, for example, um, in the last number of years. You know, last week we had two storms back to back. You know, they kind of met each other. That's how quickly and fast we are coming, coming through. You mentioned then you're looking at mitigation factors that, that we could implement so that we would have less flooding. Can you tell me a little bit about the mitigating factors? Yeah, so we met with a number of different um, people um, who are looking at various different ways to mitigate and, and maybe try and use 
things in more of a sustainable way and sustainable practices. Um, for example, we met with um, the Inishowen Rivers Trust, who, you know, Donegal in 2017, a lot of people remember, had, you know, huge flooding and a lot of damages Damages were done in um, August of, of 2017. I myself was actually, was actually caught up in that um, storm. I remember very well and, and very clearly the flooding that was in and around the Donegal and Derry um, area. Um, so we meet with uh, we meet with Chris Murphy in the documentary who they're trying to slow the flow, um, which is an, an initiative about you know it's it's about what's coming down the land and, and it's to slow that flow coming into certain areas that would be more um, susceptible to flooding. And um, so they have a very um, great initiative that they have done up around um, the Inish Owen area mm-hmm. where they have used sustainable methods to slow the flow coming down down the um, river and going into then various other catchment areas. Um, we also met with um, a young boy, Aaron Kelly, who's, who's a huge um, environmentalist in Belfast. And he's trying to look at, you know, the rewilding of the Black Mountain. You know, there, there's, no, there's no protection on that mountain. So what comes down, it goes straight down into Belfast. Belfast is notoriously built on a floodplain as well. So that doesn't help matters when that's coming down. So Aaron's very much um, trying to get the rewilding of, of West Belfast, Black Mountain and Devis Mountain you know, um, and he's quite a young fellow, which is which mm-hmm. is great to see um, as well. So he's trying to he's on a mission to kind of rewild the black the Black Mountain um, to help mitigate flooding, but also to encourage wildlife and, and biodiversity and things like that as well. Yeah, you talk about the Black Mountain. Is that the mountain that you that if you are in Belfast and you, you, that you look out and you see it as a background to the yep, harbour? That's exactly it. Yeah. Yep, that's exactly it. Yeah. 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 So it's quite a heavy you know, it's a huge feature um in Belfast, but it's very bare, you know, there's not a lot of trees on it. And there has been various other groups that have been trying to, you know, that that level of rewilding so that the the tree can add some sort of form of protection to the soil, you know. Like like I said, mm-hmm. I'm not a huge um and I'm not a, an expert in all these things, you know. Um, you do become slightly in, informed, um, but there's people that we have who are, you know, can give us the deep information throughout the program, and we think that we've kind of we pitched it quite well. That you know, we've got experts, but we've also got people who have been directly, you know, impacted by the flooding. It's not just a quick two-minute news that we see as someone's business has been destroyed or someone, you know, these are people have to live with this for their, you know the rest of their lives essentially or or have to worry about it every time there's a weather warning and it's kind of highlighting those those stories as well and do you not feel i suppose and this is a question slightly off the topic mm-hmm. that we have far too many uh weather warnings now before we never had weather warnings there might if there was uh, a snowstorm coming our way but we didn't have all this information prior to a storm or a rainstorm or wind or whatever the case may be. Yeah, well, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose we are. We're overloaded with information. Um, but I think like it's probably it's a good thing. It allows people to be able to you know to mitigate those kind of problems that are going to happen. On you know, for I'll give an example within the program. You know, we meet with um, Neil McNeilish, who has had a business at the Spanish Arches for twenty one years. You know, and his his business has been badly flooded six times. But only, you know, with the warnings, he's able to mitigate that by putting sand and the flood barriers and things like that up. So I think for people who are at risk of flooding and for for other things during weather warnings, that it's important that they kind of know that that's coming and, and kind of gives them a bit of a an extra layer of protection nearly. Right. And we know that uh, down here in the south that Cork is 
nearly always affected when there's a, an event, um, a climate event, I mean. They do welcome the warnings, there's no doubt at all about that. And there are parts here in Tipperary that flood very, very easily and houses get uh, flooded. Uh, Rosie, before I let you go then, what are the main findings that, that have come out of the research that has been done to make this particular programme on TJ Carr? I suppose um, the documentary is to capture, you know, it's to capture stories of what people are doing on the ground. I think sometimes, well, when I actually first started researching and and reading about this, you do get quite overwhelmed and there is a sense of of, of nearly gloom and doom, you know, that what can we do and we're only one person. But I think that the the message within the, the documentary is that we all have a part to play. And no matter how big or how small, that we can, you know, we can help things in our in our um, in our own communities. <clears throat> I think there needs to be like a lot of um, clear conversations between communities and um, governing bodies as well, which is something we touch on within within the documentary. Um, but I suppose for us, it's it's just it was to highlight the stories of um, of the people that are being fact- affected and the people that are, you know, that are are doing whatever they can, you know, to, to help those issues. Okay, well, look, I want to thank you ever so much for joining us here on Tip FM. And just to remind the listeners before you go, Rosie, that the programme goes out on Wednesday, the 21st of February at 9.30 on TG Car. Yep, that's it. That's, that's right. Okay. Thanks very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank and th- and thank you, thank you ever so much, Rosie, for joining us. That listeners was Rosie McNally talking about that lovely program that's going out. It's a documentary, and it's going out on TJ Cahar on the twenty first of February at nine thirty. That listeners is Ag Report for this week. I hope you enjoyed the show, and that you'll join me at the same time next week. Coming up next is the news at ten o'clock. And after that, Eamon DeWire presents Down Your Way.